So we'll move into the prophesied kingdom. And on your handout, you'll see it's uh, laid out in five different sections there. The first section is God's mouthpiece. God's mouthpiece. So Moses was initially fearful when God told him to speak to the Israelites in his name. So he was allowed to take Aaron with him as his spokesman or as his mouthpiece. God said, he will speak to the people for you and it will be as if as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything that I commanded you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. We see that in Exodus 4, 16 and Exodus 7 verses 1 to 2. So those words for us provide a good definition of the role of a prophet. So let me just throw it out there. What, how would you define prophet? How would you um, articulate that? What's a prophet? Someone who speaks the words of God. Right? When prompts them to. Yeah. <laughs> Plain and simple. Someone who speaks the words of God. Anybody, anybody else? Any other thoughts? Dana? Right, right. Right. So that's a, I love that word. There's foretelling, right? And we're going to talk about too. There's foretelling and there's foretelling as well. There's a, a proclaiming to the people in the present and proclaiming something that is to come. That's really helpful. Any other thoughts? A prophet. How would you define a prophet? <laughs> Go So we see Aaron and Moses, Aaron was Moses' prophet, passing on to the people the words Moses first gave him. So God's prophets are his mouthpieces, proclaiming his word to others. And Peter writes in the New Testament that prophecy has, has, had, has never had its origin in the will of men, but men spoke by God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter 2.1. Men spoke as God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So even in the Old Testament, when we see prophecy, it's not uh, or prophecy that God is pleased with. We, we also see false prophets. But prophecy that God is pleased with is a prophecy that happens, that takes place by the Holy Spirit. Um, they aren't sort of in a room conjuring up thoughts and they come out and speak to God's people. Actually, if they did that, what would happen? they would be punished and the Lord would kill them, essentially. Um, and so these prophets were, even in the Old Testament, carried along by the Holy Spirit and their prophesying. And so the word of the Lord came to the people in Jeremiah 4, 4, and the word of the Lord came to people, to the people throughout, uh, through Moses and throughout Aaron as he talks to Pharaoh and says, ultimately, to let God's people go. 
So another aspect of these prophets were the fact that they were covenant enforcers. Covenant enforcers. So the Bible is sort of laid out in uh, covenants. The Lord has made a covenant with his people. He was made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Israel. He makes uh, the new covenant with his elect. Uh, the Bible is laid out in covenants, and the role of the prophets is to enforce the covenant that God had made with his people, made with Israel. So they're covenant enforcers. And Moses was the Lord's definitive prophet. So the role of the prophets who succeeded Moses as well was to enforce the covenants, urging the people to obey him and reminding them of the blessing that followed obedience and the curses that followed disobedience. Again, before the Lord brought them into the land, he said, I'm bringing you in. And if you obey, this will happen. There will be blessings. If you disobey, this will happen. There will be curses. So they were already told what to expect, essentially. So when they got into the land and they um, obeyed or they did not obey, they, they, they disobeyed, it shouldn't be surprising to us and it shouldn't have been surprising to them that there was either blessing or curses, that they were judged and the prophets proclaimed this judgment, which we'll talk about in a little bit, or they were blessed because the Lord already told them, this is what's going to happen when you come into the land. And so the first great prophets after Moses and Elijah was Elisha, who are both active in the northern kingdom of Israel in the 9th century BC. So much of their ministry involves a public confronting of the kings of Israel. They call the kings to live according to God's law and to repent of their idolatry and their lack of trust in him. The, the primary role of prophets, if you look at uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets, what they're doing primarily is saying, remember the covenant. You're disobeying. Remember the covenant. You are going after idols. Remember the covenant. It's usually you're, you're, you're sinning and you're, you're uh, going after idols and rebelling against the Lord. Um, every once in a while, it's blessing, but for the most part, it's you're rebelling. Repent and turn from your sin. And many of God's prophets are, are, are killed by uh, Baal. Um, I'm sorry. Many of God's prophets are killed and Baal is worshipped throughout the land, which is, I just mentioned, it's usually you're sinning against the Lord. Return. You're breaking his covenant. Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal to a public contest in Mount Carmel, and the results are a resounding victory for the one true God. So if you guys um, remember 1 Kings 18, which we'll read together, 1 Kings 18, verse 20 to 24. So this uh, narrative of uh, Elijah and this sort of um, calling false prophets to call down to their God in this sort of contest between the one true God and false gods. Let's, let's turn to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 18. We're going to look at verses 20 to 24. So let me have someone read 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 20 to 24.
Thank you. So there's this, uh, uh, Elijah is calling these um, false, false gods, false prophets, um, to this sort of stage where well, he'll display the glory and the power of God over and above these false prophets. I'm just going to continue verse 25. Uh, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first for you, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, and put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So <laughs> this picture here is these, uh, these uh, false prophets <clears throat> calling to their, their God. And as we'll, we'll, he, he, so the competition is, so to speak, um, an altar is set, there's, a, there's a wood around it, Right? And he says, call to your God. And they call to their, their, their false God. And he says, and they're doing this from morning until noon. So hours of calling to their false God. And then Elijah starts to sort of taunt them. And he says, well, where is he? Is he on a journey? Is he in the restroom? Where is he? Call to your false God and let him do what he says that, what, what you say that he'll do. And so he taunts them. A little bit. And so this is <clears throat> from morning to noon, this is happening. <clears throat> and then verse uh, 28, and they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of, of the obla ob oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered, no one paid attention. Verse 30, then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him and he prepared the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he, and, and he had made a trench about the altar as great as contains two sails of seed, and he put the wood in order to cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. So Elijah does what they do, except he drenches the wood in water, right? So imagine trying to light a, a wood that's been soaking in water all night. It's it's not going to happen. But he does this to prove something. And so he drenches all of this, this uh, sort of moat area with, with water. Verse 33, and he put the wood in order to cut the bull into pieces. 
um, and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill your jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Verse 34. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came there and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are the God of Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know what? that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have, and, and that you have turned, I'm sorry, and that you have turned their, their, their hearts back. And so fire falls upon this altar and consumes it. And the, the whole point of this, this narrative and what's happening here, this display, is for the display of the glory and the power of the one true and living God over and above all the false gods. Because when you think about Israel's history, it's always this, uh, the true God has called us to himself, but we will worship idols. The true God is blessing us and uh, protecting us and caring for us, but we will worship idols. The true God is the God whom we ought to worship, but we will worship idols. That's the history of Israel, and that's ultimately the history of men by nature. We want to worship false gods. And so this display here is to show that God is the one true God that the people may know, he says, that you are God. And so Elijah speaks to the Lord. The Israelites have rejected their have rejected the covenant and have rejected the one true God. He says in first Kings 1910 that they have broken down your altars, O Lord, and your prophets and put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. He says, but the Lord graciously assures him that I have reserved for myself 7,000 in Israel, all those who needs have not bowed to Baal. And I think uh, even that is an encouragement that the Lord has never left himself without um, witness. He has creation, but um, also it says he has reserved for himself 7,000. And so this, this idea of um, that God is uh, lacking in his power, that uh, if, if, if all turn away, that the Lord, he's, he's powerless to, to do his will or to carry out his decree is, is, is a bad I, idea. The Lord has always preserved for himself a people. Um, and we see that ultimately in fulfillment in the New Testament. Okay, let's uh, transition down to the writing prophets. <clears throat> so from the 8th century BC onwards, the prophets began to write down their oracles. And many have been preserved for us in the Bible. And um, in, in a class I taught maybe last 2017, maybe, um, I talked about... Um, canonicity and how we got the, the new can, the, the canon, the New Testament, and the Old Testament. And the Old Testament was never really a, 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 a canon, a part of the canon that was questioned because those things that the Lord wanted his people to have, they were inscripturated and placed in the ark. So 
we see this transition from uh, the prophesying God's word to his people through the prophets being merely spoken to it being inscripturated for us. And so we have the writing prophets. <clears throat> so did you guys, Ron, were you able to make a, a, a handout for the chart? You guys have a chart in front of you. It says Northern Kingdom, Southern Kingdom. <clears throat> okay, thank you. So in front of you, you should have your chart. And if you don't, it's on the back table. You'll see it says uh, Northern Kingdom at the top, 8th century BC, Amos and Hosea. Southern Kingdom underneath that, 8th century um, Isaiah, Micah, 7th century Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and 6th century BC. So <clears throat> there are 17 prophetic books in the Bible. They're often referred to as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and the minor prophets are the rest. Why are the minor prophets called the minor prophets? Anybody know? Just for the size of the amount of writing. Right. It's not a trick question. They're just shorter books. Minor prophets are minor because they're shorter books. Um, so <clears throat> they're not less important. They're just shorter in their content. But each group has a dominant theme, and the theme is judgment and hope, both of which are based on God's covenant. Judgment and hope. So first, we're going to look at this theme of judgment and the prophets. <clears throat> God's judgment, it's interesting, I think, today that his judgment is not um, often articulated from um, the pulpit in today's churches, in many of today's churches. Um, some, I think, do do it and do it well, as we have laid out in scripture. We are to proclaim um, all of God's counsel. But that's not a theme that you really hear about in many churches today. This idea of God's judgment is almost um, non-existent because I think many people think that God's judgment is um, contrary to his love or God's judgment is contrary to his grace. If God is love, which you, you hear this a lot, people say, well, if God is love, then why would he judge anyone? A loving God won't judge. That, that's inconsistent with his character. Um, but that's just not something you see in scripture. Uh, the Lord must judge, and he, he, he doesn't judge as an earthly judge. If you go to a court of law, and you sit in this court of law, and you see the judge, and there's someone on the stand, and there's a jury, and all this stuff, uh, that judge is, if he's a good judge, I think, carrying out judgment for breaking a law. But that law isn't the display of his own holy character. <laughs> it's a law outside of himself. And he's saying, you broke the law. And if he's a good judge, he executes good judgment. <clears throat> God is not judging because he has to judge by some standard outside of himself or something external to himself. Uh, God is, he judges because he's God. And he can't um, won't do anything less because that would be inconsistent with who he is. Um, if you think about this, in any case, someone who loves um, marriage is going to have a right disposition towards divorce. Uh, someone who loves uh, children and family, they're going to have a disposition towards um, abortion. We even see this on an earthly level. Uh, but the Lord judges not by a standard outside of himself, but by his own holy character. Um, and to not judge would be inconsistent. And besides that, everybody wants judgment and justice, except when it's against them. 
that's just we, we overlook that. But um, this, this theme of judgment, <clears throat> God's judgment is hardly mentioned in some churches, as I mentioned. Uh, these ministers clearly do not preach from the prophets very often. <clears throat> By contrast, long sections of the prophetic books are devoted to exposing uh, the sin of God's people and announcing God's judgment against them. We must not think of the prophets as only um, predicting what God will do through the future. They first spoke to their own day. They were foretellers, as Annalyn mentioned, and not just foretellers. Their main message was one of judgment. Let's turn to Amos. I want to sort of look at this more closely. <clears throat> uh, so Amos moved towards the New Testament. <clears throat> and just before you get there, you'll see a few smaller books before or after Joel. <clears throat> we run into Amos. All right, so Amos uh, 1, 3, and I'm going to go through um, 2, 3. I may jump around a little bit. <clears throat> but as, as I read these verses, I want you to sort of get, uh, get the theme here. As uh, the Lord who has created the world, God is concerned not just with um, our external behavior, which I think he is concerned with, but he's also concerned with uh, the heart. <clears throat> so Amos 1, 3. It says, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. Okay, so before I continue, what I'm trying to draw out here is judgment against the nations and then we'll move into judgment against Judah and the people of God. The Lord will bring judgment upon everyone. And here I want to bring out the judgment against the nations. First, verse four. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the threshing, the, the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go, shall go into exile to Ker. Uh, verse six, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions, uh, of Gaza and for four I will not revoke the punishment um, because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom so I will send a fire upon the wall of Gaza and I shall devour her um, her strongholds I'm gonna jump down to verse 9 thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood so I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, and it shall devour the strongholds. Verse 11, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cut off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath. Uh, verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four. I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead uh, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah 
and shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with the tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together. So there's this common theme for three and for four, for three and for four, for three and for four. Uh, what does that mean? Uh, that means that the time or the fulfillment of God's judgment, if you see it like a cup, it's being poured out and it comes to its fulfillment. Um, and that's the three and four, four. The time of the pouring out of this judgment has come or will come when this thing happens. For three and for four, for three and for four. Let's look at um, chapter two, verses four and five, judgment on Judah. So not just the nations, it's everyone, but not just the nations, but it's also Judah. Chapter two, verse four and five. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send a fire upon Judah, and I shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Continuing to verse 6, judgment against Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver, and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth, and turn aside the way of the afflicted, a man and his father go into the same girl, so that my holy name is profaned. So there's judgment, this theme of judgment throughout the New Testament, major prophets, minor prophets. That judgment is not just a judgment on the nations, but God is his holy, his people, they're not off the hook, but he actually brings judgment against them as well. <clears throat> Having condemned her neighbors, God's word through Amos now turns to his own nations. The Israelites have assumed that they would be immune from judgment because they are God's people. But, the fact has, <clears throat> but that fact has made their sin even worse. Uh, he had done so much for them over the years, brought them out of Egypt, sustained them in the land, and yet they have sinned against his commands. They have broken their covenant. So the Lord is concerned here with their social behavior, their greed and injustice. <clears throat> injustice does look like something. <laughs> Christians ought to be just. We, we just can't call it whatever we want to. The Bible defines justice and injustice. Side note, but back to it. Um, and so he's concerned with their, uh, their doing justice and also their religious life. As the creator, God is Lord over all areas of life and expects to be obeyed in everything. <clears throat> so when you think about this idea, this reality that God is sovereign over all areas of life, it's common for us to just in, in culture to compartmentalize um, our Christian walk. And even the world, as they look at religion or Christianity, um, they compartmentalize it. So. They say, Friday, let's go out, you know, let's, let's have a good time, let's get it, it's gonna be so much fun. Saturday, let's do the same thing. And then Sunday, we can go to church, right? We can get sort of our injection of pardon. And then Monday, let's go out again, let's get it. And it's this idea that uh, God can be, or the religious life can be compartmentalized. It can be over here, it can be over there. It doesn't, the, the whole person and the whole life is not one of worship. It's compartmentalized. 
Um, as believers, I think we do that as well. Even as Reformed Baptists, we can tend to compartmentalize um, worship. And so we, we look at the Lord's Day, which is extremely important. It is the Lord's Day, uh, the Christian Sabbath. But we can tend to consider the other uh, days of the week or other times as not as important or as not as a life or um, characterized by a life that's lived for the glory of God. And so this, this idea that what, what we see in the Old Testament is that the Lord is concerned with uh, his people, their inward life, their outward life, all the time across, across the board. <clears throat> okay. Continuing here, as we um, consider this theme of judgment. So both um, Israel and Judah are complacent and do not take the warnings seriously. But their complacency is shattered when the Assyrians, when the Lord brings judgment against them and the Assyrians defeat Israel in 722 BC. And the Babylonians destroy Jerusalem and take the people of Judah into exile in 597 and 586 BC. So the prophets stress that these events are not just historical accidents. They are God's judgment being carried out through the nations. So God actually brings judgment upon his people through their enemies. They are given very clear warning through Moses and Joshua, even before they entered the land. If you turn away from God, you will be judged and sent into exile. They disobeyed, and as the Lord promised, they were sent into exile. The Lord is patient with them for a very long time, and they still do not repent. So in the end, judgment comes. The Lord has spoken. The Lord does what he says that he would do. For us, the Lord has spoken. The Lord will do what he said he will do. Um, No sin is swept under a rug as if the Lord cannot see it or the Lord chooses not to um, judge it. He will judge it. And so for us, as we think about our own lives personally, um, we, we, we can't have this idea that the, the sort of compartmentalization of our walk, but also um, when no one's around and no one's watching, that it's okay for us to indulge in sin, um, not externally or in our hearts. <laughs> we ought to pray that the Lord will cause the meditation of our hearts to be pleasing in his sight um, because the Lord has spoken and he will bring into account every deed, good or bad, before, the, before his holy throne, and Christ will be the very judge of that. And so I think we're reminded here that God keeps his word. He does what he said he will do. And it should cause us to be mindful, to walk worthy um, of that to which we've been called in holiness and all these things for the glory of God all the time across the board, before the eyes of men and when we're not before the eyes of men, because the Lord sees all things. Uh, go ahead, George. <clears throat> we have to guard our hearts so that we don't look at the Lord's day as the Lord's few hours. Yeah, great point. Great point. Great point. <clears throat> okay. With the uh, 10 minutes, 15 minutes I have left, let's jump down to the theme of hope 
So I've mentioned that throughout uh, Israel's history, recording the minor prophets and the major prophets, there's this uh, theme of um, judgment. The Lord is carrying out perfect, uh, he's, he's saying that he will carry out judgment on the nations and upon Israel. And it's really a sad story of uh, Israel's rebellion against the Lord, their distrust in his promises, their um, provoking the Lord to anger by worshiping false gods. <clears throat> and it really, if you just look at Israel um, as a standalone, it's, it's not hopeful. There's this idea that, or this reality that uh, they continue to sin against the Lord and there doesn't, like, no one's really um, s standing for righteousness. You have here and there, you know, a king or two who will call the, call the people back to repentance. But for the most part, Israel's history is drenched with idol worship. It's drenched with uh, forsaking the Lord and going after false gods. And so you wonder, where is the hope? Where is um, this kingdom that, that will come in which there will be perfect righteousness, as Hebrew says. Um, where is it? And we see glimpses of this hope even throughout, even in some parts of the Old Testament. Um, and so to be faithful to his word, God has to judge his people. But that same word demands that the judgment will not be the end of his dealings with them. But there is also these unconditional elements to the promises of God. His promise to Abraham is a guaranteed commitment. You guys remember we talked about that, these unilateral and bilateral promises. Um, looking back at Genesis 12, 1 to 3, I'll just read it for us. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So God's covenant, which is the basis of the prophet's message of judgment, is also the basis of the other major theme in their books, which is the theme of hope as well. While their history proclaimed the failure of Israel, the prophets proclaimed the future of Israel. There will be essentially a new exodus, a new covenant, a new nation, a new Jerusalem, a new temple, and a new king, even a new creation. God will not rebuild the model, the partial kingdom, but he will establish uh, that which it points to. So this idea of the kingdom, as we're looking at the prophesied kingdom, and the garden, we see sort of this temple kingdom idea, God creates Adam, puts him in a garden. He's to steward it and to um, tend to it. And it's interesting, the word tend in the garden is also used of priests in the temple. Um, he uses this theme of tending that Adam ought to be doing. It's this kingdom. What does Adam do? We know he fails, right? He's exiled out of uh, the, the garden, <clears throat> temple kingdom. Abraham, the Lord prophesies to Abraham, I will make you a great nation, a people after you. He brings these people into a place, Canaan, right? There will be blessing if they obey, curses if they disobey. They disobey. They are exiled. They're taken into captivity because they've broken the Lord's promises. They've broken their promise to the Lord that they ought to keep covenant. But all of this is pointing to something. 
Um, Adam is not the end. Um, Israel and Canaan is not the end. This is all pointing to a time where the uh, second Adam and the true Israelite will come and fulfill uh, the promises, right? He does what Adam didn't do, what Israel failed to do, what we fail to do daily. He does that and he brings us into this kingdom which the, the prophets are pointing to, which Adam in this little kingdom garden was pointing to, right? So Christ is the true Israelite who brings us into the kingdom. And in this kingdom, there aren't enemies on every side, right? There's no threat of war. There's not infighting. You know, we won't be, me and Will Daniels won't be in there beefing in the kingdom. There'll be peace, right? So Christ is the one to which these prophecies point. Christ is the true Israelite that obeys the Lord and keeps covenant and fulfills and brings us into the kingdom. And so as we look at from just redemptive history from Adam, even up through this point in the Old Testament, it appears hopeless. um, And it is for them hopeless unless they turn to the Messiah, the prophesied king who was on the throne forever, the true Israelite, God, who will tabernacle with his people, Emmanuel, and in him they'll be saved. Okay, so keep the end in mind as we're working through these um, stages in redemptive history, because it's only in Christ that these things are fulfilled. Okay, I ended a little early. Uh, Any questions or thoughts before we close out? Um, yes, Jesus. <laughs> um, I would say that Jesus was the, uh, the final speaking of God's um, word uh, to his people. Now, if you're asking about um, what we see just in the churches and Acts and First Corinthians and uh, prophets there, um, I would say that we'll talk after. Because <laughs> that's, that's going to be a longer conversation. <laughs> Amen. 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 Uh, any other thoughts? Right. So there's this, so the, the foretelling and the um, foretelling. So even in the Old Testament, there was this speaking uh, to the people whenever they brought God's word to the people, because they're, they're this um, intermediary. 
So God's speaking, and he's speaking to the people through the prophets, and they're saying, you have broken the covenant, or you are, you are disobeying your covenant, God. And so there's this speaking to them directly, that's the fourth telling, but even as they're doing that, and they're saying that you have broken, broken covenant, you have transgressed the covenant, they're also prophesying, and you see this over and over throughout the Minor Prophets, they're speaking of this time to come, where the Lord will bring ultimate judgment and he'll bring the kingdom to which this Canaan kingdom points to. And so there's both happening. There's you are doing this, 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 and this. It's foretelling because they're speaking on behalf of God um, with um, clarity, with authority on behalf of God to the people. But there's also foretelling because they're saying this is coming. <clears throat> Even in the, in the judgment, they're saying this is coming. Um, throughout Amos and the other minor prophets, they're saying uh, the messianic king, which the Lord prophesied is coming. So both are happening. And the New Testament, I think we have to be careful with um, having this direct line um, from the New Testament prophets, as we, would, as we see in 1 Corinthians and Acts in these places. Uh, New Testament prophets with the Old Testament prophets. Um, and the New Testament prophecy there is simply, I would say, Speaking, and then it depends on who's doing it, because I would say Paul's done that some places, which is why it's complicated. Um, but it depends. So they're proclaiming what, what the Messiah has already done, right? So it's not um, new prophecy in that it's inscripturated for us, right? So what we have in the Bible and Christ's words uh, is that final authority um, speaking on behalf of God is, I would say, prophecy. Um, and those areas in the New Testament where you see prophecy, I think it's speaking what Christ has already spoken um, to the people. And it's, it's not God speaking. I want to be careful here. This is why I should save it for after. Because I want to show you scripture and, show, and try and build a case for why I think that New Testament prophecy, as we would understand in 1 Corinthians and Acts, is distinct from um, Elijah and Amos and in other words. So again, I'll, I'll get with both of you after and sort of walk through some scripture if I can. George? That's why the church will, the church will always be foretelling until he comes. Sure. Right. Great point. Great point. Okay, we'll go one more and then I'll pray. Uh, it, you know, like you said, that a lot of people, a lot of people in a lot of churches uh, avoid uh, and downplay New Testament passages of the Bible. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think one thing is because of it itself. You know, you know, people, I think churches nowadays are just trying to sell the gospel. Sure. So it doesn't work. Um, but, you know, just thinking about why it, and just the fact that it, uh, those <coughs> passages are, uh, are in the Bible. And there's so much of them, uh, so yeah. much declaration of God's judgment. Right. Is that it's, it can't just be to kind of, you know, give you a bad day and to make you feel bad. But right. it's actually God's grace because he didn't have to declare his judgment hmm. or warn you of his judgment. He could have, he could have just punished yeah. everyone and, and not true. warned them and given them an opportunity to repent. That's a great point. And so to to avoid that and to leave out the judgment passages in modern days, avoiding and leaving out mm. God's grace to the people that is meant for everyone. Right. 
Yeah, that's a great point. It's to not not proclaim the whole counsel of God um, in his judgment. And we have to remember, too, that God's judgment is also to the praise of his glorious grace. Um, his, his perfect judgment is carried out. Um, God's, his, his perfections are not compartmentalized. Uh, he is one. Um, and so his, his judgment is carried out um, in his holiness. And so I'll, I'll stop there. <laughs> Oh, Pastor. I'm just going to mention one more passage that I think is really helpful in uh, Ephesians 2:20 regarding this aspect of uh, continuation of prophets. Right. Let me pray, and then I'll close out. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, We thank you that you have um, had your word uh, written down and scripturated for us that we could um, read of what you're accomplishing throughout redemptive history. And as we stand now looking back on the cross, and as they stood then looking forward to the cross and this Messiah who was to come, you have um, displayed your glory and are displaying your glory and will display your glory through the salvation um, of your elect, uh, a remnant you have kept for yourself. And so, Lord, um, we praise you uh, for your word. Uh, we pray that you would cause these things, help us to meditate well on these things, rather. And um, I pray that you would bless us now as we go into hear the preached word. And um, may you um, strengthen and confirm and further establish our faith through the preached word, through the prayers, through the singing, and through the Lord's Supper uh, later on today. May you glorify yourself in the midst of your people, this congregation assembled by you and for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.